In these last few months, it doesn't seem as though a day goes by without another round of sexual harassment or sexual assault allegations against some rich, powerful, or famous man. So much so that the women making these allegations have been collectively named Times, Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Some people, of course, hope that the publicity surrounding these widespread allegations will lead to some improvements in the way sexual harassment and sexual assault is handled. Fundamentally, however, I don't hold out much hope on that count. Our Christian faith teaches us that the only appropriate channel of sexuality is marriage, and that societal structures need to be crafted in such a way as to promote and to buttress the sexual exclusivity of marriage. But long ago, society gave up on the idea that there should be any boundaries to sexual expression or sexual coupling apart from the idea of consent. Today, what we're increasingly finding is that trying to build a sexual ethic on the bare concept of consent is like building a house on a foundation of sand. As our Lord said, the rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and buffeted the house, and it collapsed and was completely ruined. Policing consent is an elusive ideal when you are dealing with men and women who are vastly different in terms of the amount of power, authority, or influence that they have, and when you are dealing with ad hoc sexual encounters and relationships, and when people feel that their career or their paycheck hangs in the balance, and then you throw alcohol, drugs, or other psychological impairments into the mix, as is often the case in these situations. It's a recipe for people, typically women, getting used, abused, and traumatized in ways that are profoundly hurtful. Unfortunately, it's doubtful that any proposed solution will grapple with the underlying issue, which is that, which is that the proper ordering of human sexuality cannot occur in transitory sexual relationships and exchanges, even if ostensibly consensual. The God that we meet in the scriptures is a God of order. He does not work randomly or arbitrarily. We see this in the fact that our Lord Jesus was born into the midst of the family formed by Mary and Joseph. The Son of God, of course, could have incarnated himself into the world without being born, without experiencing infancy and childhood, without the protective mantle of the family. Yet that would not be the way of order because the family is the order that is created by God to nurture and sustain the human person. As the compendium of the social doctrine of the church teaches, the family is a divine institution that stands at the foundation of the human person as the prototype of every social order. Christ, by his participation in the holy family of Mary and Joseph, affirms family life as a sign of the new covenant. From the family... A person learns in a structured and specific way what it means to be human, what it means to love and care for others, what it means to engage in sacrifice, solidarity, and responsibility. Because the bond of the family is not derived from contract or from consent, or from laws or merely from self-interest rightly understood, narrowly understood. Rather, it derives from the mystery of marriage and procreation in which persons are born by kinship into relationships of self-giving love. In God's ordering of things, such love does not exist merely for the sake of the family in itself, 
Because first of all, the order of the family inculcates in the young a certain understanding of the Trinitarian reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through the experience of the family, the window of the mind is opened to the divine reality above us. The order of the family also has reciprocal effects on the society at large. The compendium tells us by constructing daily a network of interpersonal relationships, both internal and external, the family is instead the first and irreplaceable school of social life, and an example and stimulus for the broader community, which is marked by relationships of respect, justice, dialogue, and love. The family also shows us the ways in which love makes concrete demands upon us. Too often in our society, love becomes merely a feeling, a sense of emotional connection to someone or something. Yet as the first two readings from Sirach and Colossians make clear, to love within the family is to subordinate oneself to a set of rules, responsibilities, and expectations vis-a-vis others. Just as God works through the order of the family to nurture and sustain the human person on the physical level, he works through the order of the church to sustain us spiritually. And just as many try to rebel against the structure of the family in favor of free love and free sexuality, many try to rebel against the structure of the church in search of a free-form spirituality. Some argue that God's grace can be operative in all ways, in all places. I've had people tell me that their church is nursing a cup of fresh coffee on their patio while the sun comes up, or climbing a mountain, or rescuing stray animals. Well, all of those things can be good in their own way, but we know from Scripture that these are not, in fact, the means by which God primarily parcels out his grace to us. He works through the order of the church and the sacraments that he has established. We see this even in the life of the Holy Family, who submitted the baby Jesus to consecration in the temple according to the law of the Lord. Jesus Christ, of course, had no need for consecration. But the family does so as a sign affirming the divine order in which religion is expressed and nurtured by the rites and practices of the community of faith, which in the new covenant becomes the church. This is why Jesus gives us the gift of the church, our second family, so to speak. By the church, we have access to the sacraments of divine grace and the infallible revelation contained in the deposit of faith. Like the natural family, the church family is bound by an order, an order that gives structure, authority, and stability to the life of faith. This is why all of us need to be faithful sons and daughters of the church, obedient to all of her teaching, participatory in all of her prayer, and observant in all that she commands in the liturgy and the sacraments. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.